The sermon today is on Psalm 73, but before we look at the text of the psalm, let me talk a little bit about the book itself, the book of Psalms. The title for the book of Psalms essentially means songs. If you're translating it from the Hebrew, it means songs of praise. If you're translating it from the Greek, it means songs that were sung with a musical accompaniment. The point is, these are hymns. The, the book of Psalms is the hymnal book of ancient Israel. The book gives us a window into God's relationship with His people, the Israelites, and Israel's relationship with God. The Psalms are relevant to us, even though we're not Israel, we're the church, because they're part of the Word of God. So they're profitable to guide us, instruct us, and at times, when we go wrong, correct us. Also, they teach us what the faith of God's people looked like thousands of years ago, the Israelites, and we can learn a lot from that. Now, the Psalms are very personal, and sometimes they're dripped with the pain of the human writer, something that he's going through, something that he's struggling with. They show times when he gets it right, the human writer, and sometimes when he gets it wrong. For example, when God's people got frustrated with him, when they got disappointed with him, which they shouldn't have because that's sinful, but when they did, what did they do? How did they deal with that? We're going to see one of those occasions this morning on a topic that I suspect all of us have dealt with before, and I bet we'll deal with again. And the topic is this. Why does God let the wicked prosper? Why do those who spit at God and who treat him as if he is a joke, who mock him, why do they, of all people, prosper? They laugh at God's ways and they seem to get away with it without consequence. And we see this everywhere. We see it in our schools, we see it in our political leaders, we see it in the media, we see it in many business leaders. It's in Hollywood, it's on TV, it's just everywhere. And the wicked that I'm talking about seem to have it all. They've got the cash, they've got the entertainment, they've got the pleasure, they've got the acceptance of society. They have the power. They just seem to have it all. The wicked embrace the ways of the devil and the things that God finds to be an abomination, and yet they seem to prosper, and they seem to prosper in abundance. How can this be? How can this be? Psalm 73 helps us deal with that question, and it's a legitimate question to ask, especially as we see our culture embrace moral decay. Genesis 1 tells us that all of humanity is created in the image of God. Everyone, Christians, non-Christians, believers, unbelievers, everybody is created in the image of God. As part of that image, everyone has a sense of right and wrong. But then the question is, what is that sense of right and wrong informed by? What is it molded by? Is it molded by the ways of the world or is it molded by God's truth? If a believer's sense of right and wrong is molded by God's truth, we will be offended when we see unrighteousness. And that can be legitimate indignation on the believer's part, but we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to let that legitimate indignation become a source of sin and a sinful attitude in our hearts. That's where Psalm 73 helps us. Now let me say, seeing the wicked prosper can be, be very painful for the person who's going through suffering. Your heart struggles with the question of fairness. God, I don't get this. Those guys are wicked and they're thumbing your, their nose at you and they're laughing at you. 
while I am following your ways, and yet they're prospering, or they seem to be prospering, they're prospering, and I'm struggling. God, I don't understand this. So that can be a painful thing for the believer to consider. Psalm 73 helps us here. Let me say up front who I'm talking about and who Psalm 73 is talking about, the, the, the uh, human writer and the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, when the word wicked is used in Psalm 73. We're not talking about believers who either are, are righteous or who are rebelling against God. Psalm 73, when it uses the term wicked, is not talking about believers. And it's not talking about unbelievers who act righteously or justly. Unbelievers who do that should be commended, although their behavior is not enough to get them into heaven because only God's righteousness is adequate to get people into heaven. Psalm 73, when it talks about the wicked, is talking about unbelievers who act unrighteously, who act unjustly. Unbelievers who act in an evil manner. They are evildoers. Now, the human author of this psalm is a fellow by the name of Asaph, and he lived during the time of King David. He was from the tribe of Levi, and he held a position of authority in the musical worship of Israel. You could say he was kind of like a, a choir director. He wrote this psalm roughly a thousand years before Christ. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. <clears throat> in this psalm, we're going to shrink ourselves, get into Asaph's brain, and ride on the roller coaster of his thoughts. There used to be this cool roller coaster across from the Astrodome called the Cyclone. I don't know if anybody remembers Astroworld. They tore it down, but there was this cool wooden roller coaster. There aren't many of those wooden roller coasters anymore called the Cyclone. And when you're riding on it, you'd get on it, and you're in the car, and you there's a chain that's pulling you up, and you hear this chuk 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 You know, your butterflies in your stomach are just going crazy because you know there's going to be a big drop. So there's, you get high, you drop, then you climb back up, and then you zigzag all around. Well, Asaph, in this psalm, has a little abbreviated version of that. He doesn't have to climb high because he starts high. He starts high, plummets down, climbs back up, and then he stays. He stays high. Let's look at the psalm. <clears throat> Psalm 73, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So Asaph starts high on the roller coaster. The first thing he does is he acknowledges God, God's goodness and faithfulness. Asaph has a relationship with God. And he knows that God is faithful to those who trust in Him. Verse 2. But, and you know the but's going to be a problem, don't you? But... As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. We'll learn in a few minutes that Asaph, in his position of authority, almost led God's people astray. But then he acknowledged his sin before God. He confessed his sin and got back into God's plan for his life. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. As these passages unfold, we'll see that Asaph's attitude was sinful because he doubted God's faithfulness and he was envious, perhaps jealous, of what the wicked had. This is where his roller coaster plummets down. Asaph didn't say, God, I'm troubled here. I, I, I don't get this. Those wicked who are thumbing their nose at you are prospering, but I'm following your ways and I'm struggling. I don't understand this, but you're the boss. 
you're God and I'm not, so I'm just going to put this in your hands. If that had been his prayer, we wouldn't have this psalm here. That wasn't his prayer. Instead, we'll see that his attitude was, come on, God. I've done right by you, but you're not doing right by me. I've been faithful to you, but you're not being faithful to me. That's sinful because it doubts God's faithfulness and it challenges, frankly, it challenges God's integrity. You're not holy. In effect, is what he's saying. You're not holy because I've been faithful, but you're not being faithful. Now, one thing I should say here, we should never follow God because we think he's going to give us material prosperity. He may or may not. It's not as if we have some arrangement with God or bargain with him. You know what I mean? If I keep up, keep up my part of the bargain, God, then you have to keep up your part of the bargain. No, 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 no. That's not how God operates. We don't negotiate with God as if we're his equal, as if we have bargaining power with him. He's the creator and we are merely creatures. We should obey him because he's worthy. We should follow him because he's God and we're not. Verse 4. For there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. He means they have plenty. They got plenty of money, plenty of food, plenty of everything, plenty of prosperity. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Now, Asaph's not, not saying that these are a bunch of dudes walking around with gold chains saying P-R-I-D-E, right? He's saying they just reek of arrogance and cockiness and pride. It's just all over them. And this just really kicks Asaph in the gut. It just frustrates him to no end because he knows the principle of the Word of God, that God exalts the humble, but he humbles the exalted. But what's driving Asaph crazy is God's not humbling these guys. And that's just frustrating him. Back to the rest of verse 6. The garment of violence covers them. So these wicked men are not only prosperous and arrogant, but they're violent. And violence is a logical result when you have that wicked combination of pride and power. And let me say, as our country sprints into godlessness, where pride and power are worshipped instead of the God of the Bible, the God who is, we'll start to see more and more violence. It's just a logical result. Verse 7, their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. These evildoers don't just do violence, but they crave it. They long for it. And that's classic for sin, because sin is never satisfied. Sin never pats its tummy and says, oh, that was a great meal, I'm done. No, sin is a beast that says, give me more, feed me more, more, and it's never satisfied. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Now we get to the heart, the heart of the matter for these evildoers. These wicked that Asaph, Asaph sees, they mock God. They talk as if they are God, as if they are the ultimate authority. What do they say here in verse 11? How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? In other words, they say, there is no God. 
I do what I want, when I want, how I want, without consequence. That's my proof that there's no God, these guys say. In other words, I'm God. I'm accountable to no one but A number one. That's the attitude of these evildoers. <clears throat> Verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Here in verse 12, Asaph sums up his point. He says to God, there's now no doubt these guys are wicked. Yet, but yet they have all this prosperity and their wealth keeps growing. Now the next couple of verses, 13 and 14, show Asaph's frustration, his sinful frustration with God. Verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is painful for Asaph. It's not like Asaph is prosperous and these evildoers are just a little more prosperous than him. No, there's this huge gulf. These evildoers are super prosperous and their, their prosperity keeps growing. And Asaph is down here struggling, just eking by. Asaph says to God, in effect, this isn't fair. I've obeyed you in your ways. I've kept my heart pure and avoided the evil that these wicked people do. Yet I have to go through adversity while these guys live like fat cats as they take advantage of others. Let me say, my heart goes out to Asaph. There are believers all around the world, even today, that are in this situation, whether it's financial suffering or physical uh, health or emotional suffering while they see the godless around them thriving. Take, for example, Christians that are in Muslim countries. Those Christians may be trying to learn God's word or follow God and follow God through His Son, Jesus, but yet the godless culture around them persecutes them and even seeks their brutal deaths. And the idea that those Christians in those countries have any opportunity for material prosperity is a joke, right? I mean, it's non-existent if they're open about their Christianity. So this is a painful matter for Asaph. And we can all empathize with him. But in the end, even in our pain, we should never, never, never challenge God. Never question God's integrity or God's faithfulness. That is sinful. That's what Asaph did here. He essentially says, God, you haven't been faithful to me like I've been faithful to you. You see, our whole relationship with God is a trust relationship. We are to trust God for everything, for our eternal salvation, for His plan for our lives, for our material needs, for everything. Asaph has trusted God for his salvation, but where he's going wrong is he's not trusting God for his material needs or for God's plan for his life. God might not want Asaph to have the type of prosperity Asaph's longing for because God has a different plan for Asaph. And Asaph's going to totally miss it if he gets outside the plane and says, God, let me push this plane for you. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph recognizes that in his position of leadership, if he were to speak about questioning God's faithfulness, questioning God's integrity, he would lead many astray. So wisely, he kept his mouth shut and didn't spread the, his thoughts on that. That was wise because as James 3 tells us, God imposes stricter punishment on those who have a leadership position in ministry. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. 
I submit that that applies not just to teachers, but all who are in ministry. It's serious. Verse 16, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived therein. The more Asaph thinks about this, the more balled up he gets. I mean, he's just all wound up. This, I just, this is wrong. But then he goes to God's sanctuary, probably a reference to the temple, and he remembers. He remembers the unparalleled justice and faithfulness and greatness of God. He says, now I see it. God's in charge, and he's got a perfect plan. Verse 18, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Asaph realizes that these guys are going to get their comeuppance. They're going to get what they deserve. God will destroy them in the end. Notice this passage is reference to a dream. A dream seems so real in the moment. But then when you uh, wake up, you realize that was nothing. It wasn't real. That's how these wicked are described here. They seem so real and powerful in the moment, and they are. In the moment, they are real and powerful. But in eternity, all will see that these wicked were merely a temporary bad dream. You see, God is not mocked, even though humanity may think that he is. He is a patient God, although many mistake patience for weakness. God's a patient God, and he has a perfect plan. And ultimately, he will bring justice and righteousness. And ultimately, his justice and righteousness will be satisfied. God is not a person that we should take lightly or casually. We often want to focus on God's mercy and love and grace. And those are warming and comforting characteristics of who God is. But he's not just that. God is also a God who is holy and righteous and just. And he is a God who is wrathful towards his enemies. The prophet Nahum put it this way in Nahum 1, 2, and 3. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So God is perfect, and his plan is perfect, although we don't always understand it because we're not omniscient like him. We don't know. God might be allowing the evildoers to prosper, and to rise to power so that he can show how the mighty fall when they reject him. Or he might have some other greater purpose in mind. Either way, we must trust God that he's in control and that justice will be done. Verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. You see what Asaph just did? He just confessed his sin to God while it was in thought form, before that sin sprung into action, because our thoughts are our gateway into our actions, he confessed his sin to God before he acted on it. It is so important for us to be vigilant and guard our thoughts, because our thoughts are the gateway into our actions. Asaph sinned because he got disappointed with God, and he was envious, or perhaps jealous, of the prosperity of the wicked. But then he realized that his thoughts were sinful, and he confessed them to God before he went off and acted on them. And what's interesting here is how Asaph 
confess to God. What did he say in verse 22? I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I love how he did that. He didn't crawfish. He didn't make excuses before God. He says, I did wrong. Now, let me say, I've never used the words in my confession to God, I was a beast before you. But, you know, that works. It's not about what words you use. Confession's an attitude. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of recognition to God, I did wrong. It's an attitude of no excuses. It's critical to confess our sins when the sin is merely in thought form, so we nip it in the bud before it becomes an action. Verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Do you remember when your kids were little and their hands were too small to grab your adult-sized hand, so you just kind of put your index finger down there and they grab on and kind of take their little steps? That's, that's the picture here. God puts his index finger down and Asaph says, Yes, sir, guide me along. Verse 24. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Asaph recognizes that if he submits to God, he'll receive glory from God during his lifetime and ultimately in eternity through the eternal glory of the resurrection. So look at the change in Asaph's tone. He goes from bitterness to comfort and assurance. How did that happen? It happened because he switched his focus. His focus was, those guys are evil, and they're wrong, and they're wicked, and look at me. So he's, he's got this horizontal focus. But when he switches and he goes vertical, and he focuses on God, he's like, wait a second now. Wait a second now. God's in charge. God's in control. This is where his roller coaster climbs back up again. He returned to trust in God for his daily spiritual walk with God. He was already saved. But he's returned to trust in God, that God's in control, and that ultimately God will bring justice and righteousness. When he did that, he said, I'm good. I'm good. And his bitterness just melted away. Don't we want that for our own lives? I do. I don't want to be a sourpuss and bitter just because I see others getting away with unrighteousness. Our sense of justice should be offended when we see unrighteousness. We're made in the image of God, and we have a sense of right and wrong, and that sense of right and wrong, if it's informed and molded by God's truth, will be offended when we see unrighteousness. But don't let that become bitterness and jealousy in your soul. Leave it in God's hands, because He is ultimately in control. And He ultimately will cause righteousness to be done. And if we know what's good for us, we will stay out of God's way. Don't get between God and someone who is deserving of his punishment. What I mean by that is don't have a sinful attitude of jealousy and envy and bitterness in that you're not trusting God to act fast enough. Come on, God, get after it. No, 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 no. Just be patient and trust God. Have faith that God will ultimately act because he will, but he's going to do it according to his timing and his plan, which might not be ours, our timing. If we remember that God's in control, then we'll have comfort and assurance, not bitterness and envy. Now, one thing I want to be clear on is we should not take joy when God inflicts judgment. What I mean by that is when the believer says, yeah, stick it to him, stick it to him, God. Bring it on him. If that's our attitude, then probably we've developed a sense of hate 
And we're just feeding that monster of hate when we see God inflict judgment on somebody. That could have been us who's suffering the judgment from God. And the only reason why we're not suffering, why any believer is not suffering the judgment of God, is not because we're that great. It's not because we've done something to deserve it or merit it. It's because of pure grace, the grace of God. And who knows? God might be punishing that person in order to wake them up. God's got them by the lapels and said, wake up, wake up. You need a Savior. So don't get between God and God's punishment of someone else. But it is okay for God to, to pray that God brings justice and to take comfort in the fact that he will bring justice. There's a difference between stick it to him, God, and God, please bring justice. The difference is subtle, but it's real. Remember, Jesus himself prayed that the Father would do his will on earth in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Back to our passage. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph's saying here, there's no one who's worthy but you. No one is worthy but you because you're perfect, God. You're holy. Total reliance on God is the secret to happiness. You know how everybody's always chasing happiness? We even have the words in our Declaration of Independence, the pursuit of happiness. But we're not to chase happiness like the world chases happiness, like they're chasing after rabbits. There goes the rabbit. There goes the rabbit. Oh, there's a rabbit trail. Let me go that one. Well, that one's empty. Okay, there's another rabbit trail. Just happiness is right here. Happiness is right in front of us because God is the source of all happiness, because he's the source of all life. Dependence on God is the source of all happiness because he's the key to our relationship with him, and he's the life giver. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Here Asaph sees the end of these wicked that he had been envying earlier and its eternal destruction in the lake of fire. You see, God is not a God to be taken lightly or casually. He's a God who takes his enemies very, very, very seriously. He is a God who has designed a place of eternal torment and suffering for his enemies. Not for a day, not for a month, but for eternity. For a trillion years plus a trillion years plus a trillion years ad infinitum. Asaph recognizes here that the wicked are not really prospering. Oh yeah, they might temporarily have the goods and the power and the cash, but that's for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Eternity is forever and ever and ever and ever. Ultimately, these wicked will receive justice from God and God's righteous ones will be vindicated. So the wicked's prosperity is fleeting because on a permanent long-term basis, they will suffer the wrath of God. God is a God of patience and love and mercy, but he's also a God who inflicts horrifying wrath on his enemies. And who are the enemies of God? This is painful to say, but it's all of humanity unless they are redeemed, 
unless they are saved by the one and only Savior, who is the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone's born a sinner. We're born condemned. We're born in a wretched condition. No one has to teach the baby to say no to mommy and daddy. No one has to teach the baby to disobey mommy and daddy. You know, when they're one-year-old, two-year-old, three-year-old, it's natural to them. It's innate in us because we're born sinners. And we confirm that condition all the time because we sin frequently, either in our thoughts or in our deeds. So God says, Alex, you are my enemy. All of humanity, you are my enemies because you're, you're sinful and I'm perfect and holy and pure and I find your sin utterly contemptible. But I'm not going to leave you in that condition. I'm going to give you a way out. And the way out is I'm going to give you my son who is God just like me. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're equally God. I'm going to send him to die for you, to take your place, to be your substitute. And all you have to do is trust. There's that word again. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't done that, I'd urge you to do that now. And you go from being the enemy of God, subject to his wrath for eternity, to being his daughter or his son. Do it now. Don't wait. Verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Notice the contrast here between verse 2 and this last verse here, the way Asaph uses the phrase, but as for me. Remember back in verse 2, Asaph says, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Here he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Earlier, he's frustrated with God. He's disappointed with God. Here, he wants God. Asaph got it. He got it. He's saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. He's back on track and in the plan of God. He remembered that God has a perfect plan and that God is just and that God is worthy of our trust. All right. So in summary, how does Psalm 73 deal with the question of why does God let the wicked prosper? The answer is that we're not omniscient. God is, and he has a perfect plan. And in the end, God will bring justice, but he's going to do it according to his plan and his timing, which may or may not be ours. We may or may not see justice during our lifetime, but for certain we will see it in eternity. The prosperity of the wicked is fleeting. It is not permanent. Now, the other point that we should take away from Psalm 73 is that we shouldn't follow God because we think he's going to give us material prosperity. He may or may not. We should follow God because he's worthy. Follow God because you love him. Follow him because he's God and you're not. <laughs> 